Morning, church, again. Usually it's louder the second time than the first time. But good morning. Uh, It's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kendrick. And we're going to continue our walk through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're going to finish chapter 1. We're going to start chapter 2. Let me just give you a quick summary of where we are. Paul is sitting in Rome. He's under house arrest. And some of the church members from the church in Philippi, they sent this group over there to give him some things like food or blankets and to encourage him in his time of imprisonment. So this letter, Paul writes this letter to send back with them, and this is a letter thanking the church at Philippi, and in that he thanks them for uh, encouraging them, and he does a, a few other things, right? He, he thanks them, and then he also says, hey, you guys need to, to keep the f- gospel in focused, right? That's, the, that's what we need to do. We've got issues facing the church, and you need to stay focused on the gospel, and I know some of you who have grown up in the church are like, what? Issues in the church? It happens sometimes, Right? It happens. And here we see that there's some church uh, issues going on in Philippi. But anyway, so far in this letter, Paul has expressed his joy in his partnership with the church. Right? The church in Philippi. He's, he's said, man, I am so grateful that we got to be partners. And then last week we looked at that he expressed his joy that the gospel is continuing to advance even though he's in prison. He's still having opportunities to advance the gospel. This morning we're going to look at Paul, and he's going to express some of his joy in living a life worthy of the gospel, but what he's going to do in this teaching is he's going to give some instruction to the church in Philippi on how to live a life worthy of the gospel together, right? Not individually, but as a church. He knows that at the present time, there are some people that are challenging the unity of the church, right? There's not just those that are attacking the church. There's not just those that are attacking Paul, trying for selfish gain, trying to get some advantage, trying to become the the best ministry leader in the world. Maybe they're vying for some power or authority. There's some power grab going on in the church. That's happening. But we also know that people are just falling away from the church, right? They're falling away from the church, and they're starting to maybe question this whole church idea, and they're looking for somebody else to follow, or maybe they're looking for a church that fits their preferences, In church, what we don't understand is that this later group destroys the unity of the church as much as the former group, right? For those that are trying to attack the church, yes, that hurts unity. And when the church doesn't know that they are a family and they can just split and leave, that also hurts the unity of the church. And these are some of the things that Paul is addressing, right? But but the majority of the church, they're just hanging out together. They want to pursue Jesus. They want to continue to advance the gospel, They want to help the church be unified in its mission to make disciples, be unified in its mission to to be Jesus' witnesses to the end of the, the earth. And so in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul gives some answers to the church on how living a life worthy of the gospel together. He's going to answer some of these questions. He's going to challenge the selfish. He's going to encourage the questioning. He's going to teach the humble by simply answering the following three questions. He's going to answer this. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel together? Then we're going to look at why are we able to live a life worthy of the gospel together? And then we're going to conclude with how do we live a life worthy of the gospel together? So we're going to walk through this passage piece by piece about living a life worthy of the gospel together. If you go ahead and open your Bibles, I'm going to begin in chapter uh, 1, verse 27. And Paul writes this. Only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we're going to stop right there for just a minute because we miss some things right there. There's some Greek words. I'm not going to try to, to pronounce them because I will mess it up and you won't know what I'm saying anyway. Right? But there's this, this polyethene word, right? this political word, and sometimes we see this passage translated as only behave as citizens. Right? Only behave as citizens. Only have your life that you display worthy of the gospel. And it's important that we see this distinction for, for two reasons. One, we see the plurality of it. He's not just talking to an individual. He's talking to a group. He's talking to a group of citizens. He's talking to people. But then the other, there's kind of this play on words in this context. And Philippi, it prided itself on being a Roman colony. Not all cities under Roman rule were a colony. Some you still had to earn your citizenship as a Roman citizen, but not in Philippi. Right? If you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome, and the Philippians prided themselves on this. Right? They, they thought they were worthy of this. But Paul reminds them that they're citizens of another kingdom. Right? You're citizens of a greater kingdom. You have an alliance to a different king. You are to serve King Jesus. Right? You are part of his kingdom. And so from the, the very, very beginning, Paul writes, hey, Philippians, Right? There's only one thing. If I write this letter, it says there's only one thing that you hear me say. If there's only one thing that you hear me speak. He says, remember this, that of all the things I'm going to tell you, this is the most important, that you live out your blood-bought heavenly citizenship. Right? That you live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. So right at the, the beginning of this passage, we know Paul is addressing them as citizens, he's addressing them as a group, and he's addressing them as a body that is unified for the gospel. So we're going to continue in verse 27. Paul continues to write this, he says, So that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you, and you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And in these next few verses, he goes on to unpack that a little bit, to explain what that means. He says, and you're not frightened in anything in your opponent, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So here's the, the first question. Is what does it mean to be living a life worthy of the gospel together? Here's what it means. It means that we have one mind. We have a singular focus, and that focus is the gospel. Right? As, as citizens of his kingdom, we have one goal. We are united for the gospel. And this Paul, in this passage, Paul gives two examples to illustrate what this means to be united for the gospel. It's a little bit hard to understand this, but in the original vernacular, in the original context, as Paul was writing this in the Greek, he used two illustrations. He used words. One set of words re referred to athletes that were part of a team, and another set of words he used were military terms that talked about a, a military unit that was standing together. And he talks about his athletes who are striving to win the competition, right? They work side by side each other. They have a goal. Their goal is to win. Right? It is to win the championship, and everybody on that team has that same goal. They don't fear their opponents. Right? They find comfort and support in their opponents. If you ever watched an a underdog being interviewed before the game, right, how do they always respond? They say, hey, you're down by 
you're an underdog by 600 points in Vegas. What do you think about that? And they say, hey, you guys don't know what we have in this locker room. You don't know my team. You don't know how hard we work. As long as I got my team, we're good. Right? I'm not afraid of these guys. I don't care what their, their, their over-under is. I don't care about any of that. I got my team. I am good to go. We have worked hard, and we know how to, to beat them. And as long as we have each other, as long as we have our team, man, we're good. Right? They find comfort in each other. But then Paul uses this military term to express this relationships that soldiers have when they're standing side by side with each other in, in the fight. And this is interesting. Is there, there are studies that show that during World War II, soldiers in a foxhole by themselves froze in fear. Right? Soldiers that were in a foxhole by themselves being attacked by the enemy. And they looked around. They couldn't see anybody else. They would see that they had their weapons fully loaded. But they froze in fear. But then they saw that when there's a foxhole of two people, or when he could see his partner, they would fight back. That there was no fear, that they were able to address that fear, that they were able to work through that fear, that they were striving side by side. And when we are striving side by side, when we are united together, we are less frightened of those that oppose the gospel. Right? When we see our brothers and sisters sharing, that's one of the reasons we have small groups, is you hear other people say, hey, I shared the gospel, and guess what? I didn't die. Right? Hey, I shared the gospel, and guess what? They asked the question. Hey, I shared the gospel, and guess what? They want to know who Jesus is. Right? Too many times we get in our own selves, and we say, man, if I share the gospel, I'm going to lose my job and my house. I'm going to lose all my friends. My, my family's going to disown me, and we start going internal. But that's not the truth. And as we have one another, we can share the gospel without fear. Right, church? We need to speak the gospel fearlessly, but we need to be prepared for conflict when it happens, right? Scripture tells us it's going to do that. Paul here is following the teachings of Jesus, and he's reminding him that persecution is a sign that you belong to Christ, right? Paul teaches that suffering is a gift of God. Paul says that suffering for the sake of Jesus is a privilege. I count it an honor to suffer for his sake, Right? The suffering that comes to a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect for us, but rather it is proof of his grace at work in our life. Paul would later tell Timothy that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will. Not maybe, not we'll roll the dice and see what happens, but he says you will be persecuted. And when we face that, we need to understand that suffering for the sake of Christ provides assurance that we belong to him, right? Suffering for the sake of Christ brings us closer to him. What happens when you're suffering for the sake of Christ? What do you do? You go to God in prayer. You open up scriptures. You go to your small group or your community group. You go to your believers and say, I need help, and you go before our Lord. Church, we must remember that we will suffer for proclaiming the message of a crucified and a risen and a reigning and a returning king. Every time we preach that message, somebody's going to complain. Somebody's going to be upset about it. But church, here's this. We don't do it alone. Right? We, we shouldn't do it alone. We should do it together with our brothers and sisters, with the people in this room. We should not be afraid to share the gospel. Church, when we share the gospel, we enjoy a special intimacy with Jesus. Right? When we identify with Jesus through our courageous witness of the Christian faith. When we stand up for truth, when we stand up for Jesus, 
See, when we are suffering, but this is very important, when we're su- suffering for the gospel, not suffering for our own stupidity, right? Not every time we suffer is it Jesus' fault. A lot of, most of the time, it's our own fault, right? Most of the time, we do stupid things, and we're like, oh, Jesus, why are you letting this happen? Because you did something stupid, right? So when we put this in context, we need to remember that when we suffer for Jesus' sake, when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we will find comfort and support and encouragement in our partners, in the people that we are in partnership with the gospel, right? When we look back to Jesus and we look back to his disciples, we look back to the apostolic fathers, we look back to missionaries, we look back to to Christians that have been persecuted, whether it's jailed or burned or speared or beheaded or hung, and we look at their lives and we find strength in their suffering. How much more comfort, how much more strength do we find when we look around and see our brothers and sisters standing next to us sharing the gospel? When we are united for the gospel, we will face suffering much better together. We are better together. You've heard that term a thousand times. But the Christian faith is not meant to be lived alone. It is meant to be lived together. I want to read to you something that theologian D.A. Carson said. He said this about this passage. He said, your change in character, your united stand in defense of the gospel... Your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear for opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition, and it is a sign of assurance that these believers really are people of God who will be saved on the last day. If you're a Christian... You've already been accepted. You've already been saved by the only one that really matters. Right? The, the only one who has the authority and the ability to save you has already done it. Right? We have nothing else to fear. We don't have to fear condemnation. We don't have to fear what others think about us. We don't have to fear what others do because the God who reigns over all has already said, I love you and I accepted you and we are his children. Right? We don't have to fear anybody because the Father is with us. Right? We can live in that freedom and comfort of our acceptance before God through Christ and never, ever fear the face of man. Because we have a Heavenly Father who's already prayed the price and who's already accepted us. And to live a life worthy of the, the gospel together means that we are united for the gospel, that we're striving side by side for our faith and that we will face opponents of the gospel together and our fears will be less, and we'll be reassured that our suffering is a gift of God's grace in our life. But Paul does something here, right? As we, he continues, he takes it a step further, right? It's not uncommon for people to be united around something, to be united for something, and Paul just explained that we're united for the gospel. This is something that we contribute to. This is something where we look around and say, oh, you like the gospel, and so we kind of partner with anybody. We play a role in that partnership. And oftentimes people are superficially united because they are for something. You probably heard that term, enemy of my enemies are my friends. Doesn't necessarily mean I, I like you. I just like you more than I like this other person. Is that being united? Right? Is that a strong relationship? But that's controlled by outside circumstances or events. It has nothing to do with inward. I want you to look at Sudan right now in the real world. About two years ago, these two warring tribes have generals. They decided, hey, we're going to throw a coup, and they, they work together. They throw out President Bashir. And guess what happens now? 
Now the two generals are fighting each other, and there's a worse humanitarian crisis now than there was before. I think I was just reading that there was 400 civilians that were killed in crossfire between these two units. Right? There's no unity there. But Paul goes on to make appointment. He, he just says, hey, we're not just united for the gospel. But what we're about to read is Paul says, you're united because of the gospel. Right? This isn't something that you did. This is something that Christ did. This is something Christ did that unites you. And he explains why we're able to live a life worthy of the gospel together. It's not because of us, but it's because of Christ. It's because of what Christ has done. Let's go ahead and we're going to start in, in verse 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul continues this. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Let's just stop right there. Right? And he begins that with if. Right? He says, so if there is anything. And sometimes that if could be so since or because of Christ. Right? We are united. We were brought by the blood of Christ and we are now His. Right, we now belong to Christ. And Paul gives this list of things. He says, you're, you're united because of these things. And the first thing that he lists is our encouragement in Christ. We are, we are united because of our encouragement in Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, church, we're going to go through a whole bunch of Bible verses. It's going to save you time if you got that note and you just write down the, the verse address and maybe you come back to that in a little bit. The kids are in here. They would whoop you in Bible drills anyway. So just go ahead. Open up your Bibles, stay on Philippians chapter 2, but I'm going to read off some verses to you. But first one is, our encouragement in Christ, our, our joy of salvation is found in Christ. In Romans it says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what we have through Christ. Right? My, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, it shall exult in His salvation. There's joy and there's peace and there's celebration in Christ. Next thing is that our hope of victory is found in Christ. In Deuteronomy, it says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. In Christ, we already have the victory. In Romans, it says, If all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's through Christ that we are more than conquerors. We have already won. 1 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so we are encouraged in Christ. The second thing that Paul mentions is that our, our comfort is found in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, for just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Right, so he's talked about, hey, you're going to suffer for Christ, and now he's saying there's comfort in suffering for Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Right, we find comfort in Christ. It is that comfort that unites us. It's that comfort that people can't explain. But we can. We say it's Jesus. The third thing, he talks about our shared experiences of Christ, our, our shared experiences of the love of Christ. In Galatians, Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I have a whole new life, a whole new love because Christ gave his love to me. And in 1 John it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He gave us the example. He told us what it was like to serve and to love. And we have all experienced that love. If you've given your life to Christ, you know of that love that he has died for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? He gave his son for the world to believe in and he loved us that much. We are united. Right? We are united because of the work that Christ did on the cross. We are united by the encouragement that comes in knowing Christ. We're united by the comfort that Christ provides and we're united by the love that Christ shows us. Our unity is not some superficial thing. It is spiritual. Our unity and the the bonds that hold us together are from Christ himself, not from anything we did or anything we could do. It is strictly as a follower of Jesus that holds us together. It's because Jesus demonstrated the perfect love and gave his life for us that we are united and we're able to live a life worthy of the gospel together. It's simply because of Christ that we're even able to do that. But there's one more reason as we look in this passage that he tells us that we need to live, that we are able to live a life worthy of the gospel. If you look with me at verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul writes this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now here's the interesting part when we look through this passage, when we look through these four verses, the first four verses of chapter 2, there's one imperative. Right, there's one imperative verb, and what that means is there's one thing that says this is the main point of this. And in this passage, it is complete. It is the main thrust of this passage. The main directive here is that we fulfill his joy by being united. Right, it's when the church is united that it fills him with joy, and Paul is like a father to this Philippian church. And he naturally desires for them to get along. He naturally desires for the, the church to be united. And, and parents, if you have multiple kids, you know the joy of this when your children get along. There have been times when our kids are like playing a board game. And they're like getting along, but I see my wife crying. I'm like, you guys better knock off whatever you're doing. And she's like, no, this is beautiful, <laughs> right? They're getting along so well. I remember when the kids were at home and school started and Sailor was going to school for the first time. And as they're going to school, Max loses it, right? He wanted to hang out with his brother and his sister, but they were going to school. So I forgot which one it is. I'm a horrible parent, but one of the older ones, they got him a backpack, and they said, hey, Max, why don't you walk to school with us? Why don't you be a part of us? So you can't see it, but Max just got done crying right there. And in about 15 minutes, he's going to be crying all over again when they went into the classroom. But right there, we had this moment of peace, right? And we see the kids that were just working together. I don't know if there's anything this side of heaven that fills your heart more as a parent than to see your kids getting along, than to see your kids loving one another. But as we look at this passage, we know that that Paul isn't the first person to say, hey, I want my children to get along. Jesus prays for the church to get along in chapter John 17, right? He, He prays for his church to be united. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus is praying not only for these, not only for those that are with him, but for all those who believe that's us, that's the, the church from, from that day on till forever when the church goes home. And he said, I want all of them to be united. Right? That's you sitting in this room right now with one another that this is, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for you a lot, but right here he says, hey, I want you to be united with that person next to you. I want you to be united in this church. And he commands that we be united in mind, right? That we are to identify with Christ, that we are to reflect the love of Christ, right? That we are to be on mission with Christ, that we are to be united as a church. Church, this is one of the good news of the gospel that we often forget. The good news of the gospel reconciles us to God, and we all know that. But it also reconciles us to one another. Right, that we can have relationships, that all those stupid things that we have done, God has already paid for them on the cross, and we can reconcile relationships with one another. So as we look at this, what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel together? It means that we are to be a united as a team that is striving side by side with each other. Right, that we are to go after the goal, that we are to grow in our faith in the gospel, that we are to grow in our faith in Jesus. Right, side by side we work together and why are we able to live a life worthy of the gospel together because jesus went to the cross and bought our lives with his blood it's only in him that we find our hope it's only in him that we find our comfort it's only in him that we find our love it's only in him that we find victory but we also do it because he commands us to right he says hey hey guys get along hey guys be united Right? Hey, guys, live a life worthy of the gospel together, right? Together. People say, oh, it's just, it's just my relationship with God. It's all matter. Well, Jesus says that's not all that matters, right? And we are to live a life worthy of the gospel together. Now, those are kind of easy questions when we look at it. We say, oh, okay, that's good because, um, well, I just have to say I kind of like this person and Jesus did the rest and so we get to be united. But when we look at this final question is how do we live a life worthy of the gospel together? Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Paul writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So, so how do we live a life worthy of the gospel together? We have Christ-like humility. Right? We have humility in our life. Without this, right? without this Christ-like humility, without copying Jesus in this part, it is impossible for the church to live in a way or in a matter worthy of the gospel together if they are not humble, if they are not following Christ in this way. Selfish ambition will divide a church family before that church family knows what hits it. Church members, right, if you're a member of a church and you start to see selfish ambition, if you start to see power grabs going in your own life, you should kill it immediately, right? You should end that when you see that being played in the church. And church as a whole, when you see that happening in the church, you should kill it, right? People don't like to talk about church discipline, oh, I just want to be all great. But if you're doing something that disrupts and, and destroys the unity of the church, something that Christ called for, you need to have a talking to. That is how important this is to Jesus, and that is how important it should be to the church. 
by being self-serving instead of a humble servant, we will de- destroy the very cords that, need, that are needed for a church to be unified. Right? By, by being self-serving instead of a humble servant, we'll, we'll destroy the very thing in our own life that is needed for us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Humility is such an, an important part of the church working together. Paul actually spends most of chapter 2 talking about that. We're going to cover this in later weeks. But I, I, don't, I don't know why this is, but it seems that humility has gotten a bad rap over the years. That it's been seen as a, a bad thing. That it means that if we're humble, it means that we don't care about ourselves. That we have a, a low sense of value about who we are. That's not what that means at all. I remember I was, I was watching this talk show the other day. And this lady, she's taking care of her mom. right? And, and she's taking care of her family. There was something else going on in her family. She was... That's what she did, and she gets on this talk show and says, she actually says this, it's enough about other people, now it's about me. And the people clapped, right? They're all like, yeah, woman, it's your year, it's all about you today. That should break your heart. That should should break your heart. I love what C.S. Lewis describes as a humble man in in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. He's British. Give him, give him a break. <laughs> Who, where's Julie? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, no, I lost what I was. Smarmy person. What does smarmy mean? I got to know. Sarcastic, slimy. Okay, you're going to be that. Who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do not dislike him, or if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Amen. Amen, that's right. And when we talk about that humility, that sounds a lot like Romans 12 when we talk about what the, the characteristics of a Christian are, right? Let your love be genuine. Let it be real, not just some fake thing. That we outdo one another in showing honor, that we contribute to the needs of the saints. We're thinking of other people's needs and how do we help them? That we seek to show hospitality, right? We're not checking a box, but we're really partnering with somebody. How can I help you? What do you need? So, so here's the question. Well, how do we grow in humility? How do we show humility in our life? And I just want to end the service on So I'm going to give you five things that you should do. And if you write anything down besides Bible verses, because that's more important than anything that I'll say, you should write these down. Number one, this is how we grow in humility, is you should reflect on the cross. Right? It's when we look at the cross that we see our sins and we see God's holiness And it's there at the cross that we experience the grace of God. Peter wrote this. He said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's there when when we reflect on the cross and remember what Jesus did on the cross that we are humbled. We can grow in our humility when we remember the sovereignty of God. Too too often we like to think that we can tell God what to do. Too often we think that God is in heaven saying, oh, I wish Kendrick would do this, or I hope he helps me. God is sovereign. 
right? He doesn't need me, right? He, he wants me, right? He desires a relationship with me. He loves me, but he's not dependent on what Kendrick does, it says this in Scripture in Colossians. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, and get this, and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and he is everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Again, we're taken back to the cross and remember the sovereignty of God. He was the only one that could do anything to save us. And he did. The third thing that we could do to grow in humility is to read his word, right? We can open up the Bible. It's an arrogant person who thinks that he or she doesn't need to hear from God's word, right? It's an arrogant person who thinks the Bible's outdated and I don't need that, right? God is looking for people who humbly seek and submit to his word, right? The prophet Isaiah tells us, but this is the one to whom I will look, God speaking, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right? When we take scripture, we say, this is a word from God to me. This isn't written to the church in Philippians, but God orchestrated this to speak into my life, to change my life, to transform me. And we grow in humility when we seek guidance in his word. Right? We grow in humility when we pray regularly. And I'm not talking about when we pray for other people. I'm talking about when we pray for ourselves, when we humble ourselves before God and say, there's nothing else I can do without you. That we, we get on our face before God and say, God, I'm, I'm done. Right? I need you. I need you in my life. Here are my problems. Right? Peter tells us that we're to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? It takes a, a sense of humility that we can go before God and say, here's my, my problems. Church, I'm going to be honest with you. It's a little bit of pride when we say, hey, this problem is too small for God to handle. I've got it. That's pride. Right? God says, no, 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 no. You come before me. You cast your anxieties on me. You let me show you how much I love you. Let me show you how much I care for you. You humble yourselves and submit to me. The fifth thing that we can do is we can regularly serve others. Right? Christ gave us an example to follow. We all like to, to quote that verse that now I have given you an example to follow, but we don't like to remember what comes before that verse. Right? Jesus came in and washed the feet of his disciples. Right? Humbled himself and, and washed the feet of his disciples. And some people say, oh, well, he's just saying we should wash other people's feet. No, 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 no. He expanded it to you should do the lowest thing in the world of washing somebody's feet and everything else above that, right? You need to serve one another. You need to, to, to go out and wash feet. How can you serve the people? How can you humble yourself to, to, to serve other people, right? When we are Christ-like, we must be willing to serve one another humbly and wash their feet when that's what it calls us to do, right? We must be 
Christ-like in our humility. Christ was God. Right? We just talked about Christ being sovereign over everything. And he humbled himself in the form of man and came and washed our stinking feet. Outdo that. Right? But if we are going to grow in unity, we need to humble ourselves. We need to be Christ-like. If we are going to live a life worthy of the gospel together, we need to live a life of humility. We need to humble ourselves. Right? If we're going to live a life that's worthy of the gospel together, we must grow in Christ-likeness. Right? And we grow in Christ-likeness when we grow in humility. And we grow in humility. And as we continue to grow in humility, then we will grow in unity as a church. And here it is, is that when we grow in unity, then as a church, we will be living a life that is worthy of the gospel together. So that is what Paul is telling them. We need to humble ourselves and live a life worthy of the gospel together. We need to outdo one another in showing honor. We need to let our love be genuine. We need to follow Christ and serve our brothers and sisters. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this word from Paul as he's writing to Philippians. We just pray in our own hearts, Lord, that we would be able to look in our own hearts. We would be reminded, Lord, that it is you that unites us, and there's nothing that we will find that will unite us more than the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would follow that, that leaning. We pray we would follow that direction. We pray that we would seek you. Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to humble ourselves, that we would humble ourselves before you, we'd humble ourselves before the church, we'd humble ourselves before one another, we'd humble ourselves before our family and our friends and our work. Lord, that we would fear nothing because you are our Lord and you are our God, you are our Savior and you've already done the work. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's precious name of Jesus that we ask all of these things and all the church said, Amen.